Several years ago, I was looking for a good, exciting, all-engrossing book to read, and I came across a National Geographic list of the 100 greatest adventure books of all time. The books on the list are mostly written by explorers providing a first-hand account of their perilous journeys and adventures. Number one on this list is The Worst Journey in the World, about Robert Falcon Scott's failed attempt to be the first man to reach the South Pole. He got there, but arrived second. Amundsen beat him to the pole by a mere month. Scott's journey is more interesting than Amundsen's because he faced greater challenges. His men suffered more and came agonizingly close to making it back to the Antarctic coast, yet ultimately perished in a hurricane-like blizzard ten miles from safety. Scott left a detailed journal of the trip which gives us a dramatic and poignant history of the struggles that he and his men had. Amundsen and Scott were informally competing to be the first to reach the South Pole. Amundsen for Norway, Scott for England. At that time, there were few geographic firsts left for adventurers and explorers. The year was 1911. Perry had already made it to the North Pole two years before. The source of the Nile had been discovered. The oceans circumnavigated long before. Two great geographical prizes remained the South Pole and Everest, which Hillary and Norgay wouldn't climb until 1953. Amundsen's staging area was 69 miles closer to the South Pole than Scott's was. Neither knew when the other was actually heading out. They just knew that they were there at the coast at the same time, a couple of hundred miles apart. There was no gun that would sound or telegram that would say, go. Each left for the pole when he believed he had all the supplies in order and all his equipment, men and animals, strategically prepared. Scott got off later than he wanted to. Unknown to him, he left his coastal base just a week before Amundsen would actually arrive at the pole. Scott had planned for a dog team to meet him on his return on March 1st, but bad weather prevented that team from making it that far, which likely sealed his fate. Scott never blamed anyone for it, understanding the fierce nature of the climate. Here I will focus on Scott's journey and we will pick it up as Scott and his four men are closing in on the pole region, something like 20 miles out. After Scott's expedition had traveled over ice and snow for 800 miles, like walking from Chicago to New York pulling a heavy sled in sub-zero weather, they approached within a few miles of the South Pole, their goal, their glory and fame. In the distance, one of the men saw a dark spot on the ice, and Scott thought that it was a natural indentation, a shadow. But as they got closer, they saw clearly that it was a black flag marking a route. Scott wrote in his journal, The Norwegians are first to the pole. It is a terrible disappointment. I am very sorry for my companions. Tomorrow we must march on to the pole and then hasten home. All daydreams must go. It will be a wearisome return. The next day, they arrived at the southernmost point on the globe, January 17th. Scott wrote, God, it is an awful place and terrible enough having labored to it without the reward of priority. 
Scott felt, as many of us would have, how sad to have pushed so hard through such hell, only to come in second. But he saw a sliver of a silver lining in the achievement itself. It was good simply to have made it. They planted the Union Jack and celebrated with a little food, some chocolate and a cigarette. And then they made a mad dash for home. The weather would change soon. Scott knew it would be a desperate struggle against the elements. He wondered if they could do it. Just a week into the long slog to the coast, they encountered their second blizzard. Scott wrote, Is this the weather breaking up? If so, God help us. With the tremendous summit journey and scant food. He worried also about the frostbite two of his men were experiencing on nose and fingers. Temperature was often 20 to 30 below at night. The Antarctic summer was ending and the brutal winter beginning. From here, for a while, I will just read excerpts from Scott's journal which will tell the tale better than I can. January 25th, negative 25 degrees. Wilson has strained a tendon in his leg. Evans has dislodged two fingernails tonight. His hands are really bad. February 1st. Wilson's leg is better. Evans' fingers are worse. Two nails coming off. Blisters have burst. Negative 17 degrees. February 5th. Our faces are much cut up by all the winds we have had. Mine least of all. Evans' nose is almost as bad as his fingers. 30 miles to our next food depot. Negative 17 degrees. February 6th. 15 degrees below zero. It took 27 days to reach the pole. Now 21 days back so far. 48 in all in low temperature and incessant wind. Evans is my chief anxiety now. His cuts and wounds are festering. His nose looks very bad. And he shows considerable signs of being played out. February 10th. 10 degrees. Got a splendid night's sleep. Showing great change in all the faces, sun shining, less snow falling, two days food left. February 13th, we found our food depot, an immense relief, three and a half days food, the relief to all is inexpressible. We camped and had a good meal, 10 degrees. Bowers has a very bad attack of snow blindness, Wilson almost as bad. Evans has no power to assist with camping or work. February 14th. Evans has nearly broken down in his brain, we think. He has absolutely changed from his usual self-reliant self. This morning and afternoon, he stopped the march on some trivial excuse, six miles from our next food depot, but the weather is against us. February 17th, a terrible day. Evans looked better after a good sleep and declared that he was quite well. Negative seven degrees. We marched on. And soon Evans got behind us. We stopped for lunch and Evans was a long way astern, but we knew he would catch up. After lunch, as Evans had not yet appeared, we looked out to see him afar off still. And by this time we were alarmed and all four of us started back to him on skis. I was first to reach him. And alarmed by his appearance, he was on his knees, clothes in disarray, hands uncovered, frostbitten, a wild look in his eyes. 
Asked what was wrong, he said he didn't know, but thought he must have fainted. We went back for the sled and took him to the tent. He died quietly at 12.30. March 5th, negative 20 degrees. Regret to say that things are going from bad to worse. Oates' feet are in wretched condition. One swelled up tremendously last night, and he is lame this morning. The poor soldier is nearly done, and there is nothing that we can do for him. We cannot help each other. Each has enough to do in taking care of himself. We are unendingly cheerful when in the tent. We mean to see the game through with the proper spirit. We can only say God help us and plod on our weary way, cold and miserable, though outwardly cheerful. March 7th, a little worse, I fear. One of Oates' feet very bad this morning. We still talk of what we will do together at home. We are 16 miles from our next food depot. Hope for the right portion of food there. The next afterward is 72 miles beyond. One feels that for poor oats, the crisis is near. Though none of us is improving, though we are wonderfully fit considering the excessive work we are doing, we are only kept going by food. Arrived at Food Depot, shortages all around. March 11th. Oats is very near the end, one feels. What we or he will do, God only knows. We discuss the matter after breakfast. He is a brave, fine fellow and understands the situation and practically asked for advice. I practically ordered him to hand over our means of ending our troubles to us so that any one of us may know how to do so. In the medicine kit, we have 30 opium tablets apiece. Oats has a little morphine. March 17th. At lunch today, Oates said he couldn't go on. He proposed that we should leave him in his sleeping bag. We said we couldn't, and we induced him to come on. He struggled on a few miles, and at night he was worse. And we knew that the end had come. Should this be found, I want these facts recorded. Oates' last thoughts were of his mother. And he took great pride in knowing that his regiment would be pleased in knowing the bold way that he met his death. We can testify to his bravery. He slept through the night hoping not to wake, but he did wake in the morning. A blizzard was blowing outside. He said, I'm just going outside. I may be some time. We have not seen him since. March 18th, 21 miles from Food Depot. Negative 35 degrees, force four winds. No human being could face it. We are worn out nearly. My right foot is gone, nearly all the toes. Two days ago, I was the proud possessor of the best feet. Had biscuit and pemmican and a little cocoa. All our feet are getting bad. The others are still confident of getting through or pretend to be. I don't know. March 19th. Fifteen miles from the depot. There is no chance to nurse one's feet until we can get some warm food into us. Amputation is the least I can hope for now. But will it spread? The weather doesn't give us a chance. Minus 40 degrees. March 21st. Eleven miles to the depot. Had to lay up all yesterday in severe blizzard. March 22nd. 
Blizzard, bad as ever. March 23rd, no fuel, only two cans of food left. Must be near the end. We have decided it will be natural. We'll march for the depot with or without our effects and die in our tracks. March 29th, every day we have wanted to start for our food depot 11 miles away, but outside the tent it remains a whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for anything better now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I don't think I can write more, for God's sakes. Look after our people. That was the end of his journal. Over the next two or three days that he lingered on, likely the last to die, he did manage to write letters to the wives of all his comrades explaining that they died bravely and admirably and honorably. The bodies were found eight months later. Scott's was found with the journal and letters secured under his deeply frozen arms. One of the letters was to the people of England. He wrote, We took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint. But we bow to the will of Providence, determined still to do our best to the last. Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes in our dead bodies must tell the tale. But surely, surely, a great rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for. The British public responded to Scott's request in a kind of GoFundMe effort of its time. They raised 75,000 pounds for the families left behind, about $8 million in today's money. A huge outpouring of public adoration accompanied the surge of philanthropy. Statues were built to Scott everywhere, and the Scott Polar Research Institute was established at Cambridge. Today, on Ross Island, on the Ross Sea in Antarctica, you will find the Scott Base, a large research center established not far from where Scott launched his expedition to the Pole. What has become known, sadly, as the worst journey in the world. But out of it, many good things have come. <laughs>